What a wild week it has been in the world of soccer. Just in the past 48 hours, we've had the bicycle kick, seen around the world, tunnel fights, and a heck of a lot of success for teams nicknamed the Reds. I'm Mitchell Tierney, and you're listening to the Footy Talks podcast. It's our fifth ever episode, and we have got yet another new co-host to help us break down the week that was in the footy world. James Grossi of MLS Soccer joins me on this occasion. James, have you recovered yet from Tuesday's wild night at BMO Field? Uh, it's been a pretty crazy couple of days around these parts. You know, the soccer world never fails to disappoint, and uh, Tuesday night was a, an example of that for sure. <laughs> no, the soccer world, it's undefeated, and this week certainly proved that. And uh, we'll start with the Toronto FC game, actually, in our Toronto FC segment presented by Waking the Red. And what a night it was for Toronto FC. Obviously, one of the the bigger wins in club history. Uh, They defeat Club America 3-1. They took the lead early. I think that first half was was a little bit rough for them. Club America really pressed them hard. They they had a lot of opportunities. Toronto scored a penalty, um, and then Club America replied. And Toronto, I thought they were a bit lucky to come into that halftime break with with a 2-1 lead but evidently the second half they they really turned it on got that third goal and 3-1 is a pretty good result for them uh, going into that second leg James what are your thoughts on another big night in CONCACAF Champions League for Toronto FC yeah the first thing that comes to mind is sort of the the factor that weather seems to play down at BMO Field you know there was there was a time a couple years ago where it seemed like every time the team played at home the rain was going to come down and there was going to be some inhospitable weather and in recent years those have proved to be some of the most memorable nights you know you go back to the the 2016 eastern conference final against montreal and the the drizzling cold and that epic match and tuesday had a real feel of that it was it was a pretty wild night you know Concacaf is always fun and and uh you know club america really made the most of of the occasion and uh, i think that's one that we'll remember for a long time yeah, you mentioned the weather. I almost wonder if that or how big of an advantage that's played for Toronto FC in this competition, considering we've seen both Club America and Tigris, they kind of started to fade a little bit towards the end of the two matches and Toronto was able to get those two late goals and both were, well, we'll see how important the uh, three third goal in the 3-1 result was, but the 2-1 goal in uh, the Tigris match was certainly important. But it didn't always look that way. Chivas came out of the gate, or sorry, rather uh, Club America. (laughs) So many Mexican teams going on right (laughs) now. But um, Club America, they really came out of the gate um, very strong. And we haven't, I don't know, for me, I haven't seen Toronto FC look that nervous in a long time where um, a lot of the balls from the back were were cleared. They, They just didn't look in the early part of that game as if they knew how to deal with the Club America attack. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I sort of noticed, and, and this goes back to the series against Tigres too, in that first leg, was Toronto was a little uncertain of sort of what they were going to what they were going to see from the opponent. That first twenty minutes against Tigres, you know, they they barely touched the ball and they were just sort of observing and sort of trying to figure their way into this game. And you sort of got that same sense against Club America. It was a little bit different in the sense that you get that early penalty kick, 
which, you know, gives you something to play with. But I, I think it also, you know, the, the old saying that sometimes you can score too early and having to adjust your game plan nine minutes in or whatever it was is, is something that sort of eats at the back of your mind. And then, you know, when, when Club America grabs that goal back, I think that was really where we saw Toronto sort of look their shakiest. That was where we saw the sort of missed passes and, and the missed assignments and sort of the lack of communication between guys. And, you know, as much as, as much as players like to play 90 minutes at a time and they're very much focused on the task at hand, you, you sort of get the sense. And it's something we saw all this week where the way that, the way that a, an individual goal can affect a two-legged series is something that factors into your, to your thought process, regardless of how, of how detailed you're trying to be on the night. And yeah, you just the way they were able to to regroup from that though was was very impressive. Where once they did kind of figure out what Club America was going to do, and heading into that second half, as you said, things did look shaky. Once it was one one, even when it was two one, coming into that second half, it it almost wasn't the same as the two one against Tigris because they scored that late, and you know if that game had ended two one, I I don't think anyone would be, or especially if Club America had you know, had a better second half performance. Um, I don't think anyone would be as confident in Toronto FC as they are right now. But what did you make of that second half and Toronto being able to to turn around and really push Club America back into their half and get what was a huge third goal? Yeah, you know, around the 30, 35th minute, 40 minute mark, right before Josie scored that second, I, I was I was talking to Josh Cloak, who I suppose in the press box and we were just sort of saying like, you know, Toronto needs to just get to halftime here. They need to, they need to get off the field and regroup. And then, you know, a couple of passes and Josie scores that goal. And then you go into halftime with an advantage. And I think one thing we've seen from Toronto, well, two things that I would say is, is first is Vanny has found a way to make adjustments in game in order to rectify problems that he sees popping up. And we sort of saw that there was a lack of cohesion drifting into Toronto. There was, a lack of precision, and, and that was something that could sort of be addressed from the coach, just refocusing his guys and making sure that they know what it is that they're trying to accomplish on the night. And then the second thing that we've seen is we've they've really managed to grow into games. You know, whether it was the weather or the cold or the rain or the heavy pitch that, that sort of wore on Club America as the match went on, we've seen Toronto just sort of get stronger and stronger as the game goes later and later, and that really played a factor in the second half. And the goal scorer of that third goal was definitely an unexpected one. I mean, it, it took me a second to to even process that it was Ashton Morgan who put the ball over the line. He's definitely not a goal scorer for Toronto FC in terms of um, his history with the club. And lately, he hasn't been a player who's seen the pitch all that often until the past three games uh, with Justin Morrow out. He's gotten his opportunity and absolutely made the most of it these have been three great performances from him Um, we've had some great quotes in the past uh, couple of weeks Josie Altidore saying how much he means to this club Um, I think I think we can safely say we're all kind of rooting for Ash considering um, what he's meant to this team and and you know just how nice of a guy he is yeah, I mean, we spoke to Ash after that Salt Lake game, and I, I sort of joking with him, asked if he'd been, you know, watching Justin Morrow a little too closely, adding this sort of offensive bite to his game. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, we should remember one of the last times he played last year, he scored his first MLS goal against NYCFC, and that sort of came as a stunner as well. And, uh, you know, he, he gently reminded me that, you know, this has always been part of his game, that sort of marauding, 
running left back has always been something that he's fit into. And, you know, given the injury trouble that he's had and the way Justin Morris had a, a stranglehold on that position, it's been really easy to forget what Ashton brings to the team. You know, he's not just it, – it's it's very simple to sort of look at him and be like, oh, he's the Toronto guy, that's why they're keeping him around. But I don't think this is a team that really has the luxury of making sentimental decisions like that. So the fact that he is still a member of the squad – speaks to what they see in him and what he's capable of doing. And, and after the injury-riddled season that he had last year, it is it is wonderful to see him out there. And you know, One of the other things that's caught my eyes is, is Ash was always very good going forward, and he sort of suffered a little bit defensively. He, he wasn't as solid at the back. And, you know, I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find somebody who defended better in that match than Ashton did on that side. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't think Toronto even gets to that second half and maybe plays as well as they do in that second half if they don't get the huge confidence boost that was that um, that was taking the lead through Josie Altidore's second goal. I think that goal was kind of was kind of uh, indicative of how his season's been as a whole for me anyway, where, you know, if you look at the performances overall, um, he's he's had some rough nights. He hasn't always been great on the ball. He's had a couple of giveaways, but when the big moments come up, there's nobody better than Josie Altidore for Toronto FC, who you want on that ball. Yeah, you know, it, it's always a pleasure to sort of watch Josie, and he's such a polarizing character that, that, you know, the aftermath of whatever happens on any given night is always going to be something to chuckle about. Uh, in terms of him stepping up in big games, you know, when he scored that goal against Tigres in the last series, you know, my mind went back to the last couple of big goals that he scored. You know, the the series with Columbus last year was, was tied nil-nil, and Josie pops up and scores that huge goal at the South End. And then... Uh, Come MLS Cup final, you know, it's nil-nil. We're in the second half. Everyone's slightly worried that we're going over another shootout. And then all of a sudden, Josie just bursts in and finishes. And then that goal against Tigres. And, you know, this was the first one, the one against Club America, that he scored at the north end, which was a nice change of pace. But Josie's always been a guy that you don't necessarily see him doing his work throughout the 90 minutes. And, and that's sort of a function of both the way he plays and sometimes the way that Toronto plays. You know, his job is to to stay up high and to occupy those center backs and to keep them to keep them thinking about the space behind them that makes space in front for Sebastian Jovinko. And so we're not always gonna see Josie running around and, and making things happen individually. His is his is more of a a chess game in the sense that he's sort of constantly daring the defenders keeping them on their toes but when it comes to uh, a time when Toronto FC needs a goal there's nobody better for it than Josie and speaking of Josie Altidore uh, this game did see another dust up in the tunnel Josie wasn't involved in fact uh, for me he was the first indication I have I had of you know something was going on we saw him at halftime he didn't quite go down the tunnel he kind of re-emerged and pointed to the refs like there's something going on in there um so you know that that's that's been something I didn't want to lead with that because I do feel that this is taken away a lot from what was a solid performance from Toronto FC but definitely worth talking about um Miguel Herrera after the match suggesting that Toronto police had assaulted or hit or you know some of it was probably lost in translation although he did repeat several times um that his players had been um 
you know, confronted in some way by Toronto police inappropriately. Greg Vanny on the other side saying, absolutely, that's not what happened. And in fact, that Jonathan Osorio had taken an elbow. Um, we we can't see enough from the, from the video to, to completely um, decide what happened. And we'll definitely have to wait for CONCACAF's ruling on this. But James, what it is, what is it about that BMO Field tunnel? Um, yeah, you know, if you've walked through it before, it is a bit of an awkward construction in the sense that you sort of go from the wide open space of the pitch into this very narrow tunnel. And then where the visiting teams are supposed to turn off, there's sort of another set of doors there that further bottlenecks it. So it's just, it's not really conducive to getting players to where they need to be very quickly. There's, there's sort of a way that traffic slows down there and, and that, you know, that can potentially lead to problems if people are looking to cause trouble. You know, my first indication that something was going on was indeed Josie sort of reemerging and, and uh, sort of ha- trying to, I, my impression was that he was, he didn't like that club America's players were, were in the ref's ear for like two or three minutes after the final whistle. And so I sort of got the sense that he was just trying to be like, all right, that's enough of that. Let's all get inside and, and let's stop this. And then that's where we sort of saw things blow up after that. You know, uh, the brouhaha's at Vimo are sort of becoming a, a bit of a regular thing now. And, and then for Herrera's post-match press conference to sort of take it to another level, it, it was, as you said, it did take away from what, what was a very strong performance from TFC. But, but when a narrative like this lands in your lap, you sort of got to make the most of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, one one interesting point I heard from from Kevin Larame on uh, soccer today was perhaps it's the fact that it's glowing red in there. So either players, you know, get the mentality that it's a nightclub and you know all the fighting that goes down there, or maybe they're just seeing red in that tunnel. Just a a funny point I thought I'd give him credit for because uh, certainly there's something going on there with, with the fact that it's now been two dust ups. Uh, one of the other things that made this performance so impressive for Toronto FC was the fact that they were without, um, whether, whether it's three starters at this point, uh, who knows, but three definitely important players, that being Justin Morrow, Chris Mavinga, and Victor Vasquez. Morrow was on the bench but wasn't used. It seems that all three of these players will be available for the return leg on Tuesday. James, how important could they be potentially stepping in and uh, helping Toronto FC get to that first ever CONCACAF Champions League final. Yeah, I'm not so certain that they'll be ready just because I've been burned so many times trying to read Greg <laughs> Vanny's mind when it comes to who's fit and who isn't. You know, we we sort of had the impression that all three were going to be available for this first leg. And so when none of them were in there, you know, I, I was pretty shocked. Um, I think one of the things that we're going to see a little bit more of this year is that I doubt Toronto FC is going to have a real first choice 11 until we start getting close to playoff time, you know. Last year, last year, Vanny sort of settled on his on his preferred starting lineup. Let's say sometime in September or so, and they really got that last you know five to eight to ten games in before the playoffs came around. Given the depth on this team, I don't think we're going to see that until the, around the same time period of September and October. And so, when you have guys like Vasquez and you have guys like Mavinga and guys like Morrow, you know we've all seen what they bring to the team, but. I don't know if you would look at the performance from Tuesday and really necessarily see how any of those three make you better than what you got on the night. Like at left back, we had Morgan who, who stepped in for Morrow and, and did a fantastic Justin Morrow impression. 
Vasquez is a very different player, and he's wonderful on the ball, and that's something that Toronto will definitely need when they go down to Mexico next week. But I don't see how you replace either Jonathan Osorio or Marky Delgado, given how strong they've been to start the year. And then with Mavinga, you know, Gregory Vanderveel at center back has been a revelation in terms mm. of just how, how calm he has seemed back there. And, you know, I know Mavinga's on the left and Vanderveel's on the right, but I don't necessarily see how any of these guys who, who haven't played in a couple of weeks necessarily have to be forced back in if they're not quite ready. But, you know, that said, Greg Vanny has always said how much he loves having options. And, and if they're not starters, they're options off the bench. And, and having all three of them back can only make the side stronger. Mavinga would be the one player who I would consider starting just because I think the one problem that Toronto FC had was passing out of the back earlier in that game, considering um, how much pressure they put on the left side of defense with, with Zavaleta and uh, Drew Moore and maybe a bit of the pace that Mavinga brings as well. I just think that you know, he's closer to a Vanderveel, and we saw how well Vanderveel did against uh, Club America in terms of, you know, he barely put a foot wrong, barely put a pass wrong. So having Mavinga back there as well, I think, um, you know, would just help. And we did see how well he did against Tigris um, in Mexico. So, uh, you know, that would be the one player who I might consider um, putting in. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. And, and Chris's recovery speed and sort of his nose for danger and that ability to make up five yards where nobody else could make up two is just, it's such a wonderful thing to watch. And, and yeah, of course, if, if he's back, I'm sure, I'm sure he'll be in contention, but I don't think we've seen him play for two weeks. And then you never quite know with this sort of mystery groin adductor sort of strain, what he's going to be and how long he can go. And you know, in a match like this that has the potential for extra time and penalty kicks, you never want to really risk burning a sub early if somebody's not quite ready. That's a good point. Um, you know, looking at this match and and judging from what we've seen, obviously one caveat is it's going to be completely different down in Mexico. That's something that watching years of CONCACAF will always tell you. You can never completely compare the home leg to the away leg. But judging from what we've learned from Club America and Toronto FC, um, what do you think are the keys to this match now going down for Toronto FC and, um, you know, if, if they are to get that positive result? For Toronto, I, I think the main focus, well, aside from getting the away goal, which will sort of negate the slight advantage that Club America comes out of this first leg with, despite losing by two clear goals, is um, they need to stay organized defensively you know those couple of those couple of little moments that were shaky the goal that club america scored and that late chance where alex bono came up with that big save was where there was there was a fair amount of detachment between the midfield and the back line you know maybe maybe they weren't exactly detached on the goal but there was people were dragged out of position and gaps opened up and that was really where club america look to expose and looked at their most dangerous. So for Toronto going into the second leg with a two-goal advantage, you know, just, just making sure that you keep your shape, making sure that you're moving together, making sure that you're covering each other and that somebody is always going to get the ball and then being way more careful in possession so that when you do get stretched out, you're not immediately turned around and, and putting yourself in bad positions. And there was an MLS match um, this past week, as as crazy as that sounds, um, considering how much of the headlines have been stolen by this CONCACAF Champions League game. Um, same score, Toronto FC emerged 3-1 winners over Real Salt Lake. 
the big story for me coming out of that match was uh, evidently, as you aforementioned, the move of Greg Vanderveel to center back. He has played center back before at Ajax, but was signed for Toronto FC, at least um, we thought, as as more of a right fullback. But with the depth uh, or lack thereof that this club has at center back, especially with Nick Haglund's injury, how important could this move become? Oh, well, Vanderveel, as I was saying before, he's just been he's been spotless back there as a center back. And mm. for Vanny, a coach that that sort of loves to have options, as I said before, and sort of loves to tinker a little bit with how things look. Having a, a right back that can slide into part of a back three or, or slide into the middle in a four four two just adds even more options to what he can do. And that's without making a substitution. You know the the I think this year we're gonna see a lot more of the four four two moving into a three five two, moving into a back five, whether the midfield flattens out or stays in a diamond or we're gonna see a lot of tactical flexibility from Toronto FC and between Vanderville, Auro uh, Nicholas Hassler, Justin Morrow, and even maybe Ashton Morgan, the number of guys that can sort of go from straight-up defenders to more attacking options, from from hanging back to pushing forward. I think we're going to see a lot of options at Vanny's disposal, and, and that's something that he's a big fan of. And speaking of Toronto FC's options, um, it doesn't just end at the MLS level, but continues with the USL level as well. Um, one of the reasons I actually wanted to have you on, James, is because you are the preeminent voice on Toronto FC2, um, which is the club's USL affiliate. Now, that might be a nice way of saying you're the only voice on Toronto FC2. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, you're certainly someone who has taken an interest in the next generation of Reds. Um, why do you think Toronto FC supporters should as well? You know, that's a, that's a bit of a tough question, and, and I guess it comes down to to... There, there are several factors that I would consider as to why it, it's worth your time to sort of keep an eye on what's going on down there. And, you know, the first one you just mentioned right there is that this is the next generation. If you had been watching TFC too closely for the last couple of years, you would have seen the rise of Raheem Edwards. You know, and we we first saw Raheem with the first team during the Voyagers Cup back in, uh, I want to say 2017, no, 2016 it was. When he came on in Vancouver with the side down and was a real spark plug. And then we saw what he did last season. And it's a shame that he he finds himself now in Montreal, though that may be the best for him. But, you know, when you get to see a, a kid like that come up from being a, a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old, you sort of get a glimpse of what they can provide at the next level. The same goes now for Liam Frazier, who's a, a 20-year-old, 21, something like that. And he's been very much a leader down at TFC2 for the last couple of years. And not sure how much time he's going to get with the first team this year, but that that is really watching TFC two games. You can definitely see the guys who are going to make up the next the next couple of years worth of homegrown signings for the club. Um, you know, aside from keeping an eye on sort of what's coming up next, there's a lot of really interesting stories down there between between those homegrown guys, whether they're from Brampton or from Toronto proper or from from wherever. The next generation of guys. There are fascinating stories, and you know we all we all love the stories of Jonathan Osorio and Ashton Morgan, the Toronto guys that have come up. And there are just so many more of those great stories down there right now. You know, the club. Let's say they have about twenty-five guys on the roster. I'd, I'd wager that about fifteen of them are local boys that are sort of doing everything they can to turn themselves into professionals. And that's it's not only good for Toronto FC, but that's good for Canadian soccer. And then 
the final point that I would make is that, you know, if you're, if you've been a fan of Toronto FC long enough, you know, you remember those old days where, where it was a struggle and the team would lose more often than not. And, and half of the fun of going to the park was, was sort of witnessing that struggle and not knowing what was going to happen and finding, finding your joy in those little moments that there were. And, you know, TFC two is sort of, uh, they've struggled to really find their, their place at USL. You know, they haven't been particularly winning over the years. And so, it's a nice reminder of you're not always going to be winning championships in soccer. You're, you're, sometimes you're going to have to struggle and sometimes it's going to be a battle. And, and that's something that TFC2 definitely does. <laughs> yeah, if you're missing the vintage struggling days of Toronto FC, then you'll love Toronto FC2. What a great commercial for the club. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm joking. But um, it has been a bit of a struggle for the team so far this season. Two losses. Now, I would mention that they are against pretty good USL sides. The Red Bulls, um, two team. Red Bulls are one of the, the top organizations in terms of player development in MLS. And uh, Charlotte Independence is a solid side as well. Uh, what what have you seen from those first two matches? Evidently, small sample size, but um, a good early look at the young Reds. Yeah, that is a very tough start. You know, it's never easy to start on the road and then to go to two of the better teams in your conference and two teams that have, you know, perhaps more of an identity than a lot of the other teams that you could run into. The challenge for Toronto FC, too, so far has been, you know, they didn't really have a full roster constructed until recently. And so preseason has been sort of stop-start. You, you weren't quite sure who you were going to be playing with. You weren't quite sure what the, what the side was going to be comprised of. And then with so many players going down to the Dallas Cup this past weekend, again, like Laurent Gaillot couldn't really count on who he was going to have at his disposal. And, you know, I think... I think we're going to see this side as very much a work in progress all season. I don't think we're going to see the same 11. We're not going to see the same 18s. We're going to see guys from the first team dropping down. We're going to see guys from the academy coming up. And so you never quite know what you're going to get from week to week. And that does come with its challenges, especially for a coach who's trying to, trying to, you know, get, get a side together that will put some wins together and sort of excite people with them moving downtown and sort of more into the spotlight, you know, through, through these first two matches, we've seen, you know, Matt Serbley's goal in New York was very well taken. You know, that's a, it was a, a surging run into the box and a, a very tidy finish. And, you know, while they struggled to, to create much in Charlotte, they really were able to, to limit a very good attacking team to very few chances. And the two goals that Charlotte scored on that day were very much the result of sort of Toronto, Toronto, you know, mistakes might be a little too harsh, but but sort of lapses where they they let Charlotte have chances, and that's very much going to be the case with the team this year. Is that when you have a team full of young guys who haven't really played together, who are, you know, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, playing against the grizzled veterans of USL, there are going to be a lot of moments where where that lack of experience and that lack of now sort of lets you down, and and that'll be a running theme. It was a theme that Jason Bent talked about a lot last year, but. It's still an awful lot of fun to see these guys go out there and give it their all. Yeah, for sure. And if you want to watch Toronto FC 2, they will be playing Pittsburgh Riverhounds on Saturday at 2 p.m. Uh, with Toronto FC off this weekend. That's a good chance to to maybe watch some Toronto FC 2 when you wouldn't ordinarily. Um, some other matches to watch this weekend as we move on to our game of the week. Um, and I've gone with the really easy one 
this week. That's being the Manchester Derby. Um, unfortunately, it won't be as good as I think everyone was hoping it would be at the start of the season. Uh, United is far too far behind City to to really you know make this that meaningful. And City, at the same time, this game doesn't mean all that much to them as it comes in between their Champions League tie with Liverpool, which we'll talk about a little bit later, and they won't be uh, in top form as a result of that. But at the same time, City could clinch the title. They could become the earliest team ever to clinch a Premier League title. Um, and United will certainly not want to have that happen uh, on their watch. They'll want to save a little face. So um, definitely a lot of narratives going into this game, even if it won't be quite as exciting as we thought it would be. Uh, James, do you have a game of the week that you think the listeners should make sure to watch? Yeah, I'm going to keep it local with a, a nice first meeting between LAFC and Atlanta United and MLS on Saturday. You know, LAFC is coming off the big shocking loss in the Derby, having taken a three-goal lead only to get Zlatan against the Galaxy. <laughs> and then Atlanta United is is a high-scoring, entertaining team. And you know, last year, if you believe if you believe what's been said, they've sort of revolutionized what an expansion team should be. And LA is very much trying to follow in their footsteps there. So uh, a good chance for LAFC to bounce back from a tough loss against a team that you know they're sort of going to be chasing in terms of of candidates for those best ever expansion sides in MLS. It'll be one to not miss for sure. Yeah, I'll definitely be tuned into that one. Um, and you mentioned goals galore. That was probably one of the theme with the, with the champions league this week. Um, and, but no goal, uh, definitely was more talked about than Cristiano Ronaldo's overhead kick against Juventus. Um, you know, the Juventus supporters standing up and applauding him. And that, that almost seemed to take Cristiano Ronaldo aback for a moment. He he didn't seem to fully be able to process, you know, after being booed for the entire game, every time he touched the ball, um, what he had done. It's just been an insane season for Cristiano Ronaldo, at least an insane year. He started off a little slow, but 24 goals in his last 12 matches, and he scored in all of the Champions League matches this season. Um, James, you know, do, do we really appreciate Cristiano Ronaldo as much as we should? No, I don't think I don't think you can ever really appreciate the greatness of some of these guys in the moment. You know, I find people sometimes it takes a little bit of distance and a little bit of removal from a situation to really sort of appreciate just how wonderful it is to live through. And, and you know, between Ronaldo and Messi, who we'll talk who we'll talk about a little bit later. You know, football fans are very lucky to be watching football these days. We're seeing some magical stuff. And, you know, that goal, you know, iconic moments, regardless of, of how good of a career Ronaldo has had so far, getting those sort of iconic moments, those ones that sort of, you know, will be replayed time and time again over the next 50 years, 100 years, whatever it is, those don't come around every so often. And so that goal against Juve was spectacular. And, you know, Ronaldo's a guy that always seems to play with a chip on his shoulder, and so I'm sure that it it cut across his expectation to have the Juve fans so appreciative of the magic that he pulled off. And for the home side, I mean, this was definitely a disappointing result. Um, I think most people would have favored Real to go through, but certainly not with this emphatic of a win. Um, what went wrong for Juventus? Because they didn't seem to play all that poorly, especially early on. They they looked like you know they were creating a number of chances, but Real just continues to to win. It seems in in Champions League. 
Yeah, no, this goes back to something that I mentioned earlier when I, when we were talking about Toronto and Club America, and that's in these two-legged ties. You know, you always sort of come in with a game plan, and you have a way that you want the, the match to sort of go. And when Real Madrid scores in the third minute there, you know, Juventus just sort of got punched in the nose, and, and they were a little bit stunned by that. And then you're doing all those mental calculations of, okay, what do we have to do to come back? How does this affect the way that the, the rest of this 90 and the next 90 is going to lay out? And that just, especially when it comes that early, that just throws such a such a roadblock in what your plan was for how you wanted to manage the game. And then, you know, it went from, went from bad to worse with Real adding another goal and then Dybala getting sent off and then yet another goal for Madrid. And, it, you know, there are snowball effects that happen in these games where where things don't go right for you at first and then gradually it, get, it gets a little bit more out of your grasp. And that's something that we saw in a lot of these Champions League games this week. Yeah, and you, you talked about Dybala. Um, he, he's only 24 and he, he was actually having a pretty good match. I thought before he might've been Juventus's best player actually before he got sent off, but you know, what does this do for him? Because now this is another big game where he's, he's had kind of a disappointing performance and he definitely, you know, he won't get any sort of chance to, to rectify that uh, in the uh, second leg because he's not going to be there. Yeah, you know, the red card's always tough to take. And, and you know, uh, all these guys are such competitors that, you know, if you beat them once, they're going to be relishing the chance to come back at you next time and show you what they can do. And so for him to be missing the second leg is definitely going to be uh, a tough one to swallow for himself and for Juventus. In, in terms of his career, you know, I, I always look at this as sort of a, it's got to be a learning experience for him. It's got to be a an opportunity to, to assess sort of how he got himself into that situation with the dive and, and you know, whether that was a bookable offense or not, you know, you have to be more careful after that and you can't go throwing your foot up in, the, in somebody's chest later on in the match. <laughs> so, I mean, like, that that's what you can hope from a young man like this is that he takes what he needs to in terms of lessons from this and the next time he's presented with this opportunity, he makes the most of it. Yeah, for sure. And... You know, surprisingly, for me at least, the, the closest um, of the ties so far is Bayern and Sevilla. I thought actually Sevilla started really well. I think they were very unlucky to, to not go up by more than one goal. Uh, Sarabia missed what would have been a gimme and really would have changed the the look of this game. But uh, Bayern come back. You know, they have this is their first win in six games um, in Spain. And Diego Alcantara scoring that, you know, important goal. Seven of his eight Champions League goals have come in the knockout stage. So a clutch player there. Um, you know, how much of a missed opportunity was this for Sevilla? Because it looked for a bit like maybe they could continue Bayern's misery in Spain. Oh, it was a massive missed opportunity. I mean, you know, speaking generally, you always want to make the most out of your home games, especially when it's in a first leg like this and, and you face a, a difficult trip into Germany to face Bayern at home, which is a pretty daunting task. And they did come out relatively well. They they definitely kept Bayern back a little bit and had chances to go ahead. And then, you know, to not to not make the most of the one goal that they score and then to see two two goals that should have been considered own goals go into your own net, I mean... That, that too, just like Juventus, that's a real gut punch when it comes to the momentum of a series. And you never want to rule them out. It's relatively tight. But two away goals going into into Munich is, is not a pretty sight if you're a Sevilla fan. 
No, for sure. And that's now 12 straight matches um, that Jupp Heynckes has won um, with Bayern Munich in the Champions League, which is an incredible feat for him. Do you see any way that Sevilla gets back into this? Or are they in big or a big tough situation going to the Allianz Arena? Uh, it was hardly a vintage Bayern performance in terms of sort of the the self-assuredness that we normally see from a Bayern side. So if they play that same way in the second leg and, and they don't get the bounces that they got in this game, you never quite know how it's going to happen. And it's close enough that it's not completely out of the question that you could get something from it. But, you know, given the dominance that Bayern has had at home, and it, it, it's hard to really, to really see Sevilla getting much out of this series. Let's move on to to Barcelona-Roma. We'll just talk about this one briefly. Um, Own goals were the name of the day. I saw a headline somewhere that said Roma scored three goals at the camp now but still weren't able to put themselves in a good position to advance. Um, Actually, there have been five own goals um, for Barcelona this Champions League campaign. Leo Messi has six. No other player has more than one. So own goals, the second leading scorer for Barcelona right now. Um, on top of that, do you feel like Roma just got a bit unlucky in this match? Because, um, you know, 4-1 was maybe not a scoreline fully indicative of this game. Yeah, it was it was a tough game to watch if, if you were supporting Roma in this one. I mean, between between the first two goals being own goals for Barca and the two sort of penalty shouts that Roma had turned down, that's a, it's a tough one to take. Now, you know, own goals are always sort of as much as they're, they're shocks to the system and, and you can't necessarily plan for them. I always see them as sort of an indication of the attacking team putting the defending side on pressure. So it's not like they come out of nowhere, aside from those you know ridiculous ones where a defender slices it into his own net from 30 yards or something like that. Something crazy like that. Uh, so, I mean, for Roma, you know, if Zeko gets that call early on and they take a lead from the penalty spot or if, if the second foul is considered inside the box instead of right on the edge when Pellegrini is taken down by by a Barca defender, then, you know, who knows? It was hardly a Barca, it was hardly a vintage Barca performance in terms of, of that sort of scything, cutting, attacking performances that we're used to seeing from them and, you know, aside from the two own goals to see, the third goal looked a little bit more like the, the Barca that we're used to, except that it was Gerard Piquet finishing it off, which was kind of strange. And then Roma pulls one back and looks like they, they might be able to make a series of it. And then Suarez strikes to, to make it 4-1. And, you know, that's a tough scoreline to, to face. Even if you are going home and you can take a lot of positives out of the match, that's a, that's a big ask. Yeah, definitely, especially against a team like Barcelona that just doesn't seem to lose this season. And speaking of, you know, it wasn't a vintage Barcelona performance. One of the players, one of the reasons for that was Lionel Messi didn't necessarily have a great game. Um, Do you think he looks at this now seeing, you know, Ronaldo's got all the headlines right now and even someone like Mo Salah is starting to get into that discussion for best player in the world. Do you think that really drives him and how much... uh, how much fun will that be to watch if we've got all these players firing on all cylinders um, as the Champions League, you know, heads into the next couple of rounds? Yeah, you know, I would love it if, if Messi went home at night and was sort of studying what Cristiano Ronaldo and Mo Salah were doing and how many retweets and how many mentions they were getting and all that. But I, I just don't feel like that's that's something that he will spend much of his time occupied with. I always get the sense with these sort of guys that, 
you know, his his focus now will be seeing out the La Liga season with Barcelona, making sure that they win that title, and then he'll be focusing his his attention on getting himself ready for the World Cup this summer. You know, we saw Argentina get absolutely manhandled by Spain, and and they barely squeaked into the World Cup if it wasn't for that Messi hat trick a couple of months ago. They might not be going there, and so. I don't think he'll be he'll be spending much time worrying about who's talking about who and, and who's going to be World Footballer of the Year this year. I think his focus will be winning the title and then getting ready for the World Cup this year. And the, certainly the most shock result of the Champions League, at least for me, and I'm almost disappointed because I was hoping that this tie, it maybe still will in the second leg, but I was kind of hoping this tie would... Um, bring a little bit more to the table in terms of being very competitive. Um, that being Liverpool's 3-0 shock of Manchester City. Um, it almost played out like the last time these two clubs played each other, where Liverpool came out early and really put a lot of pressure on City and, and scored a couple or scored three goals and um, put them under the gun. But Manchester City just didn't seem to have any sort of answer this time. I would caution that it is only halftime. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of football left to play in this series. It was a ridiculous game. I, I was actually up at Toronto FC's training ground waiting to interview with some TFC2 players. So we were watching it on the TV there. And it was every time somebody would walk by and look at the TV, they just have this stunned look on their face like, what happened? And, you know, uh, I don't think we've seen City look that shell-shocked at all this season. You know, aside from that last meeting against Liverpool where they, they lost, I think, was their only loss of the season this year. And, mm -hmm. You know, I suspect that won't really sit well with them. They got the Manchester Derby that you mentioned this weekend, which will definitely give them a chance to put this match in the rear view and then they can refocus for the second leg. But I really kind of feel like this series is definitely not over. It's only halftime, as I said. Fair enough. Um, but the one player who certainly did put in a good first half performance, as he has been doing almost in every game, um, he's played for Liverpool so far, is Mohamed Salah. Uh, how big of a difference does that make for a team where they almost know they're getting a goal from this guy every game they go into? Well, in a low-scoring game like this, you know, anytime you have a guy that's good for, you know, 0.7 goals a game or whatever <laughs> sort of rate he's scoring at, that is a massive advantage for a football club, you know. I, I do find it kind of funny that, like, of all the clubs, the one that I associate most with having, like, the one striker who very much carries the team on his back is, is very much Liverpool. You know, you go back to, you know, your Kenny Dalglish, your Ian Rush, your Robbie Fowlers, your Michael Owens, your your uh, Fernando Torreses, and your Luis Suarezes. Like they they love their center forward, who is the goal scorer for that team. And so to to see them have another one, sort of, not only must it bring a smile to the to the faces of those in Liverpool, but I mean, like it, it feels like all is right in the footballing world. When, Liverpool has a guy who's banging in goals like that. Notice no love for Andy Carroll. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> from a Manchester, uh, from a Manchester City uh, perspective, you know this is it. obviously you said it's halftime and they'll be very hungry to turn this around. But do you think Pep just got it wrong? I mean, he had De Bruyne was playing kind of a weird position. He didn't seem to fully know what he was doing. The The biggest mistake might have been um, putting Laporte on uh, on Salah, you know, not having a proper fullback there. And then he also doesn't play Raheem Sterling. Do you think sometimes he just he's just too smart for his own good and kind of overthinks these things? That definitely could be a factor, but I would I would stack this more up to being, you know, sometimes there, there are certain teams that just 
they're your nemesis. They have your number, and the way that they play just does not mesh with the way that you like to play. Uh, you know, what I know of Manchester City is is they like to have their time on the ball, and they like to, to set things up, and they like the game to be played the way that they want to play it. And Liverpool, the energy that they get from their front, front three and the control that they have from the three midfielders behind that just doesn't allow Manchester City to build up that that bit of momentum that they love to play with. And like I said about Juventus getting punched in the nose and being a little bit stunned, I felt like that's what City looked like in this one too. Yeah, seven wins for for Klopp against Pep. So in terms of having his number, that's certainly the case. Um, now, if you want to look at the projections uh, from 538, and obviously, um, you know, the, you have to take all of these with a grain of salt. But in terms of clubs reaching the next round they have Manchester City as the most likely in terms of the trailing teams with 7% Juventus Roma and Sevilla they're all tied at 2% um, which of these clubs do you see as possibly coming back from you know these crazy deficits Sevilla's isn't that crazy but if you look at in terms of the context it's it's a little bit bigger yeah, you know, you have to agree with 538 when it comes to numbers like this. But City City definitely <laughs> has the best chance in terms of they're going home and they can score goals. And, and, you know, if Liverpool gets that away goal, it'll always change the calculus a little bit. But if you look at the other three series, you know, 3 nothing going going to Madrid or, you know, going back home three goals behind, those are some big asks from, from the other three teams in this competition. So, yeah, City... City Looks like it's the most likely, if if most likely is not the wrong term to use in a situation like that. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I'm excited for next week, to say the least. Has to be said, last time Liverpool did travel to the Etihad, they did lose 5-0. So this one isn't as over as you would think. Um, now let's move on to our crazy soccer story of the week. And this week, um, we're taking you to League Two, where Accrington Stanley's owner Andy Holt has gotten himself into a bit of hot water with English League Two for paying his players in McDonald's when they win matches. Um, basically, this is considered a bonus, or at least the, the English League is considering this a bonus and saying um, these kind of things have to be written into players' contracts. Um, but his team's doing very well. I mean, they, they look like they're going to be promoted. Um, so maybe this Big Mac thing really is a winning formula. Um, James, if, if you had to pick a food that you wanted to put into your contract in terms of a performance bonus, what would it be? Well, I love this story, first off. Like, I would love to see the, the negotiations that happen over how much McDonald's you can put in your contract. Does it stipulate a six-piece McNuggets, or are you, are you limited to, to Happy Meals here? Like, we need the details on this one. Hopefully, we'll, we'll see a contract like that in the near, in the near days. Um, for me personally, you know, I guess I, guess I, would, I would break it down into whether I'm expected to perform better after eating this food or is it one of those things where this is the treat to sort of keep the morale up and, and keep the mental energy going throughout the season so you know there are very few things that I wouldn't do for some ice cream so if there was some ice cream in there I wouldn't be against that but uh, to be honest I would not want to have to be running around having consumed any ice cream so that might be a bad choice in terms of you know if there's a game in the next 24 hours so I don't know. I'd go with some hummus. You know, there's never a bad time for some hummus. I, I might have some for a snack this afternoon, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. So let's let's write that in there. 
All right, now I think all of the listeners are going to go out and have some hummus because I'm very hungry as well as a result of uh, <laughs> of that. You speak about uh, foods that are uh, that slow you down. I, I remember reading in a book once, uh, and I know soccer people hate hockey references, but a Toronto Maple Leafs player um, before each game he used to he'd cook a steak, he'd take a shovel and put the steak into uh, the furnace at uh, the old Maple Leaf Gardens. He'd have a steak. And he'd wash that down with a pint of cream and um, some apple pie for dessert. So how does that sound as a pre-game meal? Well, I'm hoping that was a goalie because I could not see somebody skating around off the line. Was this a Turk Broda story or something like that? Like I'm pretty sure you hear all that. Oh, <laughs> uh, the way that the way that uh, you know elite athletics have changed over the years is just unfathomable you know you hear all those stories of guys going out for pints or having fish and chips before games or having steaks cooked in furnaces that maybe i i just don't think one should eat a a steak that's cooked (laughs) anywhere near maple leaf gardens based on some of the experiences i've had there over the years but uh uh, yeah no i guess whatever works for you if that's what you come up doing and that's what you're used to then uh you know go for it yeah, probably a stay-at-home defenseman, considering he'd get cramps if he even slightly moved his body. Um, well, thank you very much, James, for joining me this week. Um, where can people find you, and um, is there anything you're working on right now that you think the people should check out? Oh, it's been my pleasure, man, anytime. Um, for this week, you know, we, we've done a bit of recaps from Tuesday Night's Madness, all the uh, all the shenanigans that Herrera got up to. We'll be looking ahead to the next leg in the next coming days. And then I've got a couple of pieces uh, in the works on TFC2 in the academy ahead of their match on, on Saturday that you can find at Wake in the Red and then my usual stuff over at MLSsoccer.com. Yeah, definitely be reading that. And uh, yeah, hopefully next week will be a week of comebacks because otherwise I'm not 100% sure what we'll talk about on this show. Um, but nonetheless, thanks again for listening. My name is Mitchell Tierney. If you want to continue this discussion in a live panel setting, make sure to check out Footy Talks 5 at the Rivoli in Toronto on May 3rd. Tickets and more info are available over at homestandsports.ca. You won't want to miss out on that one. Have a good week, everyone. <laughs>